It is so good to see you again here, oh, for a brand new episode of M3, the Movie Musical Man. Thank you so much, this is what I want to say right up top, for donating at least $1 a month via Patreon. That is the reason why you have access to this exclusive material, and you are a generous, good person. I want you to pat yourself on the head, I want you to pat yourself on the back. See if you can do both at the same time. I bet you can't, you're doing it, alright, fine. (laughs) We are in front of the movie theater in our mind, and unfortunately, the golden elevator is still out of operation. The renovation, the construction work, I don't know, I've been trying to get in touch with some sort of foreman or crew member or something like that, but I have not been able to find any contact info. I have not been able to get a a status report on that project. So, it would stand to reason that we need some alternative form of transport. Well, the sign on the elevator directed us out here. We're not even going to go through the revolving, I know, the revolving door. It's your favorite part of the show. But there's no reason for us to go through that because we already know what the alternative transportation is. This is a two-scale recreation of a medieval catapult. It's all in keeping with this month's theme, which is the Dark Ages trilogy. Of course, we'll be talking about the Court Jester today, as well as Camelot, and its spin-off, <laughs> Quest for Camelot. We all know that Quest for Camelot is a spin-off from the Learner Randolo musical Camelot, of course. No, that's not true. I don't want to. I don't want to put bad information into your head. Bad information is what I also like to refer to as a lie. You're climbing in. Okay, you're getting into the medieval catapult. Uh, so uh, who is going to? Oh, oh, uh, it's the solid gold man who drove the the coach, the carriage. The last time we got together, hello again. Hi. Do you talk? You? D- oh no, he's shaking his head. No, with a rictus grin on his face. A little unsettling. But uh, three, two, one. Oh, he's he's holding up a three, two, one series of fingers. Okay, so all right, uh, solid gold man, where are you over here? Uh, three, two, one. Uh, my voice. <laughs> oh, oh no, I should have cleared my voice, but now we're in the air and I can hear the golden elevator music, even though we are flying through the clouds. This is fascinating. Okay. <laughs> Woo! Oh, feel that wind against our faces. My God. Hey, while we're flying through the air past birds, watch out for the birds and. Uh, small meteorites and clouds and such. I, I want to tell you this. I, I have another little movie thing that I want to throw your way. A movie thing. What a, what a, what a, what a wonderful way of putting it. <laughs> I need you to watch the trailer for a movie called, the, the title of the movie is 80 for Brady. It stars Jane Fonda, Lily Tomlin, Rita Marino, and Sally Field. I need you to watch that trailer immediately. It is one of the worst movie trailers I've ever seen in my life. Billy Porter, Broadway's B- 
Billy Porter is in the film. He plays uh, some sort of stock paper doll gay choreographer. I, I'm not really sure who that's supposed to be appealing to because otherwise the movie seems to be appealing to Republican white women. <laughs> yeah, I'm not really sure what they're going for, but you will not regret watching the trailer for that film. It is a it is a piece of junk art that I am fascinated with. Oh, God. Okay, we're here. Oh, my goodness. I, I Oh, I am sweating. Am I, well, this is appropriate. We, we have a full-on castle theme. The walls are made out of hard stone. Castle stone. Classic castle stone. And there are banners and there are torches. Ooh, torches. This is fascinating. This is a wonderful bit of theming. As always, the movie theater in our mind is really stepping up when it comes to the theming I could eat. So if you are ready to eat, I feel like we are going to have to take another trip to the Session stand. Oh, low. Yay, verily. Ooh, see how I'm talking. Yay, verily. Let's go to the concession stand. Delicious things to eat. The popcorn can't be beat. The sparkling drinks are just dandy. The chocolate bars and the candy. So let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Let's all go to the lobby. Well, I'll be doggone. My goodness. Okay, so the manager, I'm just going to introduce you myself if that's okay. The, the manager of the concession stand this time around appears to be, uh, correct me if I'm mistaken, but it's the Beast from Beauty and the Beast. How are you doing, Beast? Oh, that's, uh, you know, it's it's fine. It's great. I, I bet you're wondering why I'm the Beast in the first place, right? Uh, why is he, why is he the Beast? Why is he the Beast? Uh, is that your question? Uh, yeah, I suppose so. Unless we're catching you at a point in your story where you haven't transformed back into the prince. Maybe, maybe I'm not sure what's what, what what might be going on. What is going on with you? Well, that's a very good theory. You 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 might be thinking to yourself, "Oh, brother, I bet he I bet he's not. I bet he hasn't even turned back into the prince." Well, that, that's not true. You're catching me after the happy ending. Uh, the, the enchantress, uh, she she never told me this, but it's a full moon right now. Okay, where I come from, at least, which means on a full moon, I turn back into the beast. Which is, oh, brother, that's a very annoying situation. Because everybody on my staff turns back into inanimate objects. It's really wild. It's crazy. Uh, but you know, I'm here. I'm here, and I'm really here. I, I want to help you guys out. So and here's the menu. Uh, yeah, we've got a uh, beef ragu, cheese souffle, uh, pie and pudding off omelet, of course, uh, and the gray stuff. We got a lot of gray stuff. It's it's essentially a, a moose whipped a whipped moose dessert. We all we always all have the the standard candies and popcorns and such. The drinks, the soda pop, uh, whatever you need. Well, okay. Oh, so the uh, beef ragu that. That sounds, uh, that actually sounds a little heavy. I will do, I'm going to do a standard popcorn, okay, and a cherry Coke, and then I will do a bit of the gray stuff, too, and... Okay, you're, okay, and then my friend here will have the cheese souffle along with a cherry Coke, an interesting combination. <laughs> and I'm not criticizing. As You want the gray stuff too? Okay, that's our order. I, I, I gotta say, Beast, uh, you're putting it all together very quickly, my goodness. Uh, you look wonderful today. You're in your classic blue and gold sort of, uh, I don't know what that is. Is that, is that a naval jacket? Uh, do you have a date? Do you have a date with Belle tonight? I, I imagine you getting together and recreating that beautiful dance that you 
you do in, in your story. Is that, is, is, is that what's going on? Oh, uh, <laughs> yes. Uh, uh, you, you're, you're, you're right. This is the jacket that I wore. It is a naval jacket. Uh, uh, but no, I will not be meeting uh, with Belle tonight. If you, oh, brother, if you have to know. Okay, so the thing about the full moon is I turn back into the beast. We've already established that. But uh, on, on, on these nights, I like to go out with uh, Madame de la Grande Bouche. Uh, you, you might be wondering to yourself, who the hell is that? Oh, well, that's the wardrobe. Uh, you know, sometimes I, I like to get together with her, especially on a, on a full moon night. Uh, Belle and I have this, we have this arrangement. When you're in a relationship for as long as Belle and I uh, have been, uh, you, you tend to create some rules for yourself. Uh, you know, you get a little restless. So I, I like to go out with the wardrobe on full moon nights. I'm in beast mode. She's a wardrobe. Uh, it gets really crazy. Now, you, you might be thinking, well, tell me more, tell me more. Like, does she have a car? I don't have time for that. I, I think Belle would be a little upset if I revealed any, any more. Oh, <laughs> maybe I've revealed too much already. Here, take the gray stuff. Uh, take the, the cheese souffle we got. Take it all. Just take it all. I, I gotta go. Oh, <laughs> I'm sweating. I hope Belle doesn't get upset with me. Uh, I gotta get up to the uh, projection room, okay? But then I, I'll play the trailers for you guys. Well, we gotta get this moving because the wardrobe is... She's waiting for me and she's got her own demands, okay? Oh, she gets really wild and worked up if, I, if I'm even a minute late. So, <laughs> okay, guys, uh, here. Just take all this and I'll see you in the movie theater. Oh, brother. Okay, 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 okay. Yeah, okay, okay. So we we have everything. We we have everything despite our orders. Uh, beef ragucci souffle pie and pudding off on the gray stuff. Popcorns, uh, j cherry sodas. Oh, we are weighed down. Uh, can, can we get a tray, actually? Yes, yes, fine. Here are trays. Thank, my you, God. thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Okay, so let's just rearrange all this stuff here. Da -da -da. Are you good? All right, all right. Theater number one, we are in here, and the theming is on point as always. I'm already burping. I haven't had a single thing to eat. It's like my stomach already knows that what I'm about to eat is going to wreck me. This beef ragu, it is, ooh, it is heavy. It looks like mud. It looks delicious. It smells delicious, too, but it has the consistency of just straight-up mud. <laughs> this is gonna, this is gonna do a number on me. Beast, I know, I know you're on a tight schedule now. If anything, if you want to head out... No, 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 I don't need to head out. It's fine, brother. It's fine. I'll play it right now. This is the trailer for The Court Jester. Let's go. You, you want to go now? Yeah, let's go now. All right, we're going now. I found a bow and arrow and I learned to shoot. I found a little horn I learned to toot. Now I can shoot and toot. Ain't I cute? Yes, he killed him at the palace. But playing the court jester is just another disguise for the amazing Mr. K in this lavish production that gives full rein to his talents. He's a dashing, impetuous lover, pitching woo in the palace with Princess Angela Lansbury. Oh, Giacomo, you are so ardent. With your permission, my lady, I'd like to go round again. Making hay in the hayloft with gorgeous Glynis John. Matching blades with ruthless Basil Rathbone. Lurking in the forest, a hunted outlaw. No, dear sprightly sprite, the nimblest elf, the wickedest witch or the devil himself can ever outfox the fox. Taking to the road, a man of many faces and many accents. Uh, French, je le trouve en sauteur, les fleurs c'est toi, rompe les chiles et toi, mouah, le fouan délicieux. Jousting to the death with the grim and grisly, gruesome Griswold. <laughs> Fighting in the forefront of the most incredible battle ever filmed.
you, you wouldn't know this, but during that trailer, we're here in theater number one, and the beast came in. He gave us blankets to drape over our laps because, well, the thing about the theming is the stone, the castle stone, is very cool to the touch. There's a bit of a chill in here, and the beast is so gracious. I, you know, he's on a tight schedule, but he, he brought out these blankets from his own collection. Ooh, that's what makes a prince a king. That's what makes a prince a king is what I do say. And there's some kings in this movie. <laughs> and maybe I should move on to the movie facts. The court jester was first released, oh, upon the public on January 27th, 1956. The directors and the writers, they are one and the same. We have Melvin Frank and Norman Panama. Music and lyrics by Sammy Kahn and Sylvia Fine. And the movie stars Danny Kaye, Basil Rathbone, Angela Lansbury, Mildred Natwick, Cecil Parker, Robert Middleton, Edward Ashley, Noel Drayton, and Glennis Johns, who you might know, I'm sure you know her, as Mrs. Banks in Mary Poppins. That Glennis Johns voice, that is a one in a million voice. When you hear her talk, you immediately think, wait, 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 that's the Mary Poppins mom. I know I did. The plot is as follows. An evil despot by the name of Roderick murders the royal family of England and seizes the throne for himself. Can you believe it? Many believe a baby of royal lineage survived the manslaughter and is under the protection of the Black Fox, a bandit who resides in the woods. The Black Fox has many associates, including Hawkins, played by Danny Kaye. Ah, oh, he's a former circus entertainer is what he is, who is tasked with caring for the baby king. Hawkins views the assignment as unmanly, but what can you do when the Black Fox gives you an order, you follow it. Sensing danger, the Black Fox orders Hawkins and the tough-as-nails Jean, played by Glennis Johns, Mrs. Banks, to move the baby king to a new location. Nothing goes as planned, and our heroes soon find themselves mixed up, mixed up in the soup of royal intrigue. Jean is kidnapped and presented to Roderick as a wench, my god, Hawkins, having a adopted the persona of Roderick's new jester, becomes an object of affection for the villain's daughter, Princess Gwendolyn, played by Angela Lansbury. What's more, the scheming Lord Ravenhurst, played by Basil Rathbone, believes Hawkins to be a skilled assassin. And if that weren't enough, Hawkins is hypnotized by Griselda, played by Mildred Natwick, a witch who serves as Gwendolyn's lady-in-waiting. Oh, oh, did I forget to mention? Hawkins' suit of armor is struck by lightning, and he becomes a walking magnet. That feeling when, am I right? There's a lot going on, all sorts of shenanigans, but those who are deserving receive an appropriately happy ending. Well, I say that, but a Black Fox agent named Fergus is definitely murdered. <laughs> it's, it's true. I suppose some casualties are to be expected when attempting to overthrow a corrupt monarch. The movie practically slams to a halt, by the way. That's my first observation. The end. Lights up. Get out. <laughs> We've run out of movie. It's time to wrap the fuck up. So here are my observations regarding the court jester. Chris and I first saw this movie in April of 2021, which wasn't all that long ago, right? But we were a tad hazy on the details, the finer points. We had some questions is what I'm trying to say. Foremost among them, does anyone sing other than Danny Kaye? The answer is no, they definitely do not. Oh, sure, the, the cast serves as a backup choir every now and then, but 
Make no mistake, Danny is the captain. He is the captain now and forever. The Alpha and the Omega, the Grand Poobah Marshal of the Parade. And don't get me wrong, Danny is a gifted performer. Very funny, very charming, sharp as a tack. But it's a hard, ooh, it's a hard pill to swallow when you realize an icon like Angela Lansbury is never going to burst into song. Never. They dubbed her vocals in the Harvey Girls, and now this? Ah, I mean, when exactly did Harvey? Hollywood wake up and realize Lansbury could sing. Not in time for the MAME movie, that's for damn sure. I did consider replacing the court jester with a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court, which I've never seen. That would have that would have shored up the theme even more, because at that point it would be a King Arthur trilogy. But something tells me that is as much of a Bing Crosby showcase as the court jester is for Danny Kaye. Pretty sure Bing Crosby is the only guy who sings in Connecticut Yankee. And if I had to choose one over the other, I would choose Danny. I would. Sorry, Bing. Baby. Booby. Bobby. The women of England who are kidnapped and forced to serve as wenches, they appear to be quite happy with the situation. To a T, to a one. They're all smiling. They are so excited. Oh, you want me to be a wench? Uh, oh, I have no choice. You simply must have me. Oh, well. Wait until Jocelyn hears about this. She is going to be so jealous. What's that? Oh, the men of the castle are a little more than stinking brutes, and I may never see my family or friends again. Oh, listen, darling, you don't have to worry about selling me on this. I'm already in the wagon. Let's go. They are... They are too happy. Too happy. Con and Fine's songs are perfectly pleasant, but musically speaking, it doesn't get any better than the opening number, which is known as Life Could Not Better Be. Ooh, it is so bouncy and gentle. I was humming along to it for, for the rest of the week. Songs could not gayer be. Sound your dough, ray or me. It's so fun. Danny is flouncing about and casually batting away the names of his co-stars. The credits keep appearing on screen and he bats them away like bugs, which which probably says more about him than anyone intended. More on Danny Kay's his behavior in a, in a bit. Oh, more on that later. Trigger warning. I have a trigger warning. There is quite a lot of bare baby ass in this motion picture. I'm not being facetious. This is an all too real trigger in our home. Bare baby butts make Chris and I uncomfortable. We don't know that baby. Why am I, why are we looking at its butt? So so if you're in the same boat, the butt boat, beware any scene in which Danny Kaye is holding the baby. If Danny is holding the baby, the odds of seeing that baby's ass are, ooh, they're, they're good. They're too good. The verbal and physical comedy is excellent, especially throughout the accelerated knighthood ceremony, which leaves Chris in stitches. I find it to be funny, but it leaves Chris in stitches. I would describe this sequence, but it's completely dependent on the visuals, really. And before I go any further, I I do want to endorse The Court Jester as a movie you should check out. Watch this movie. Watch The Knighthood Ceremony. It's a well-made trifle, minus the bear baby ass, and it's guaranteed to lift you up on a gloomy day. I will make that I will make that guarantee right here and now. If The Knighthood Ceremony and climactic sword fight between Danny Kaye and Basil Rathbone, ooh, that is, that's a fantastic bit of physical comedy on its own, but if those scenes fail to tickle your funny bone, the worst Wordplay will. Ooh, the wordplay. Our favorite running gag is as follows. Uh, Beast, actually, can we run that scene on the, on the big screen? Let, let's play that right now. If I die, 
Just pray that I die bravely. You'll not die. You'll not have to fight him. Griswold dies as he drinks the toast. What? Listen, I'll put a pellet of poison in one of the vessels. Which one? The one with the figure of a pestle. The vessel with the pestle? Yes, but you don't want the vessel with the pestle. You want the chalice from the palace. Uh, I don't want the vessel with the pestle. I want the chalice from the what? The chalice from the palace. Hmm? It's a little crystal chalice with the figure of a palace. Does the chalice from the palace have the pellet with the poison? No, the pellet with the poisons and the vessel with the pestle. Oh, the pestle with the vessel. The vessel with the pestle. What about the palace from the chalice? Not the palace from the chalice. The chalice from the palace. Where's the pellet with the poison? In the vessel with the pestle. Don't you see? The pellet with the poisons in the vessel with the pestle. The chalice from the palace has the brew with it. It's true. It's so easy. I can say it. Well, then you fight him. Listen carefully. The pellet with the poisons in the vessel with the pestle. The chalice from the palace has the brew that is true. Oh, the pellet with the poisons in the vessel with the pestle. The chalice from the palace has the brew that is true. Good man. Just remember that. The vessel with the pestle. The flagon with the dragon. The flagon with the dragon and the vessel with the pestle. Oh, another question that arose during this rewatch concerned Griselda. I'll, I'll remind you, that's the character played by Mildred Natwick. Everyone is constantly accusing Griselda of being a witch. And I vaguely assumed those accusations were baseless. I thought, oh, she's not really a witch. Well, false. Griselda is 100% a witch. She turns Hawkins into her personal puppet on a number of occasions and routinely poisons those who stand in her way. Griselda is basically an anti-hero in the sense that her loyalties are malleable. But that's only because she wants to avoid being killed herself. Princess Gwendolyn, Angela Lansbury, is always threatening to execute her. She does it early. She does it often. So I understand. Griselda is just looking out for number one. While we're on the subject of death and dying, Fergus dies off screen, as I mentioned, after being subjected to a series of tortures. This is, as Chris pointed out, way out of step with the movie's otherwise fancy-free tone. If I could make one change to the film, I would ensure the survival of brave Fergus. That man accomplished a great deal despite the ceaseless blundering of Hawkins. Fergus deserves his just reward, is what I think. Several characters are played by little people in this film. None of them have names. They essentially move and think as a hive mind, which is, you know, that's its own problem. But the movie doesn't insult or otherwise treat them as a joke, which came as a, as a major relief. No one talks down to them, and they ultimately play a key role in the villain's defeat. It's not the best example of representation, I'll give you that, but it's a hell of a lot better than what you would normally find from this era, from the era that preceded it, and the era that followed it. Representation for little people, consistently not very good, but this is pretty good, this is pretty good. Can we talk about the Danny Kaye musical 2 by 2 Alright, so now I'm circling back to Danny Kaye and his behavior. So this, this show premiered 2 by 2 on Broadway in November of 1970. Here is everything else that you need to know about this show and everything that went into it. This is a major side path that we're going to take. So 2 by 2 features a book by Peter Stone, music by Richard Rogers, and lyrics by Martin Charman, who I believe wrote Annie along with uh, any number of other shows. I believe I said Charman just then, but I apologize, Martin. I believe your name is Charnin. Charnin, okay? So I, I apologize to you. Martin, the show, 2 by 2 is a comedy based on the 1954 Clifford Odette's play The Flower Peach, awful title. Uh, it's it's bad. So that play is a drama, but the musical is a comedy. So already we're we're sort of 
stretching the source material to fit our needs. The plot chronicles Noah's struggle to convince his family that a global flood is forthcoming. And if I don't know if I have to tell you this, but Danny Kaye, of course, plays Noah in this show. In a crucial scene, we meet a fictional species of rodent, a rodent known as the Gitka. The Gitka sings a song before God, if I'm reading Wikipedia correctly, and is ultimately left behind to die in the flood because the Gitka, ah, she has no mate, okay. I'm sure that's a very harrowing little subplot, the Gitka, the tragedy of the Gitka. Ecology, the generation gap, and the atom bomb were only a few of the themes and parallels in this show. I'm sure the commentary was salient. So salient. Several months into the run, Danny became bored and decided it was time to fuck around. He improvised a dance to try and impress Dick Cavett, who was in the audience one night, and this resulted in the actor tearing a tendon in his leg. <laughs> Ouch. Subsequent performances saw Danny utilizing crutches and a wheelchair, so he refused to step out of the show. I'm the fucking star. I'll use these. I'll use the crutches to goose the women in the company, and I'll use the wheelchair to mow people down. That'll be funny. Here's Danny in a wheelchair. I'm gonna run you the fuck over. Danny became even more restless, if you can imagine it, as time went on, and would often sing in the wrong tone for comedic effect. Is that funny, Danny? Is that funny to sing the song poorly? I don't know if that's funny. During an impromptu curtain call speech, he declared to the audience, I'm glad you're here, but I'm glad the authors aren't. Irritated theatergoers wrote letters to the New York Times, and Danny was blacklisted from the Tony Awards that season as a result of his behavior. If you think that's harsh, keep in mind Kay had the song 40 Nights cut from 2x2 because it wasn't written for him. Number one, he didn't like that. And number two, he thought it was too funny. This song is too funny. It's not mine, so we're cutting it. No one is allowed to be funnier than Danny. No one. Uh, so that's my major side path. But then I realize I have no further observations regarding the court jester. So it's time. It's time to get up with our trays and our blankets. So Oh, the beast is so generous, but this is, oh, this might be the most awkward little trip that we have ever taken, but we are going to make this work. Okay, we have the door open, we're stepping out of theater number one, and if you'll notice on the carpet here, there's lots of little skulls. Is that really, is that medieval? I suppose, I think of catacombs, medieval catacombs filled with skulls, I suppose. They're kind of cute though, they have googly eyes and stuff. They're fun, it's kind of like belated Halloween theming. Here we are at theater number two where we are gonna talk about Camelot after you. And we're just gonna walk in here and out of setting my tray down, putting my blanket on my lap, getting the tray back here so I can, this beef rangoo, I will say, it is thick as ass. It is, it is ass thick. It's got a donk a donk. It's got a fucking, uh, fucking trunk to it. But it is, it is making me feel very warm. The blanket and the beef rangoo, which is still piping hot. Not a, not a degree of temperature has been lost. It's really making me feel very nice and cozy here in this castle movie theater of ours. Beast, if you're ready to go, let's play the trailer for our next film, the 1967 musical Fantasia. <laughs> He never described it as such. It's Camelot. Let's go. Let's watch that trailer. The most poignant legend of love in our language. The immortal tale of King Arthur. Mm. 
Guinevere. Lancelot, the perfect knight. And Sinister Mordred. As memorialized in T.H. White's modern classic and transformed into one of the most loved and successful musical dramas of modern theater by the lyrics of Alan J. Lerner and the music of Frederick Lowe, now brought gloriously to the screen. Camelot. on October 25th, 1967. It was directed by Joshua Logan. The writer is Alan J. Lerner. It is based, the script, I should say, is based on T.H. White's 1958 novel, The Once and Future King. Music by Frederick Lowe. Lyrics by Alan J. Lerner. Hello again, Alan. The film stars Richard Harris, who many of you might know as the original Albus Dumbledore in the Harry Potter series. Oh, the Harry Potter series. Aging, aging better with each passing day, isn't it? <laughs> Fuck you, J.K. Rowling. The film also stars Vanessa Redgrave, Franco Nero, David Hemmings, Lionel Jeffries, and Lawrence Naismith. The plot, such as it is, concerns a love triangle between King Arthur, his wife, Guinevere, and his best friend, Lancelot Dulac. The plot is, ugh, it's stultifying is what it is. Enough said. I, well, no, I suppose I must not forget about Mordred, King Arthur's evil, illegitimate son. Ooh, Mordred. Woo-hoo-hoo. He's a real fly in the ointment, that one. Ooh, that Mordred. Like the court jester, I have seen Camelot once before in August of 2017. The default settings for the DVD I rented from the library played a score-only version of the movie. It went right into it, right into the score-only cut, which is something I, I never heard of. I never encountered such a thing. And it, it, Oh, I gotta tell you, it left me dumbstruck. I didn't know what I was watching. I thought, my God, is Camelot an arthouse film? Is this a silent film? Will, they'll be, will there be on-screen dialogue at a certain point? No, that's not true. I, I eventually figured out what was going on, and this time around, Chris retrieved the very same DVD from our local branch, and he was told by the clerk that the movie was lovely. But there was a caveat. They said to Chris, oh, you, you know, the movie's lovely. It's a lovely film, though the costumes are eccentric at times. I uh, Well, okay, I understand where this person is coming from. I do, uh, but at the same time... The costumes and sets are the movie's greatest asset. Maybe that's why the score-only version exists in the first place, for those who simply want to coast on visuals and vibes. The prospect of muting these characters and ignoring their conflicts is definitely a promising one. 
Richard Harris, who plays King Arthur, and Lawrence Naismith, who plays Merlin, are equally glassy-eyed in their first scene together. It's as if they were staring directly at the moon, and this inevitably led me to believe they were shadracked, coked out of their gourds. Merlin, am I a bad person? It's me, Richard Harris, as King Oh, what has become of me? Whoa! Merlin is barely in this thing, and that drove me nuts, if I may say. This guy has owls hanging off of every limb. Why wouldn't I want to see more of him? He has owls. Show me more of Merlin. Everyone, no one cares about King Arthur or Lancelot or Guinevere. If you engage with this legend, it's because you want to hear about Merlin. He's a magician. He's a sorcerer. They built a whole musical around Merlin. It was bad, but I can understand the appeal. We like Merlin. King Arthur, not so much. Harris appears ill at ease from moment one, which is surprising when you consider how aggressively he campaigned for the role of Arthur. He wanted it so bad. The man adored Camelot. He bought the stage rights in the 1980s and starred in two, not one, but two back-to-back tours. I hope he felt more at ease by that time because this performance in the film is dire. There's a lot of wincing and grimacing. We're vacillating between scummy goblin pervert. Ooh, it's me. <laughs> I'm touching myself. And, uh, uh, gee, golly, what a curse. Uh, King Arthur here. I'm a man boy. Gee, golly, what a curse. None of these choices are appropriate. And they have an enormous influence on the rest of the cast. No one manages to deliver a line or note without appearing somewhat anxious. They can't because they're too busy having an out-of-body experience. Here's a piece of IMDb trivia for you. Richard Harris, who smoked three packs of cigarettes a day, lost his voice several times during filming. Oh, really? You don't say. You could never tell. I'm shocked. I'm surprised. I'm agog. Jaw on the floor. Hoo-ha! Hoo-ha! What are you telling me? What are you talking about? Huh? Ho-ho-ho! Uh... At one point, at one point, he delivers this line as follows. So the line is, I'll just deliver it to you neutrally, and then I'll do an impression. He says, I demand a man's vengeance. That's the line. But he says it as, I demand a man's vengeance. I demand a man's vengeance. This is not what anyone would call acting. There are a handful of actors who can get away with offbeat delivery, Christopher Walken, Nicolas Cage, but Richard Harris, you ain't one of them, no! There is a startling lack of chemistry between Harris and Redgrave, Uh, none, I would say. We are meant to view their romance as legendary, synonymous with that of Romeo and Juliet, or Paris and Helen of Troy, but they regard each other warily, like kids who have to kiss in the school play. Oh, uh, Ah, hello there. I'm kissing you. (laughs) I could not believe how much time we spent in that snowy forest. (laughs) Nearly a full half hour before we managed to get up off our asses and move to another location. You start to wonder, is this all there is? Are we never going to leave this isolated acre of land? The sets are spectacular, but they can hardly distract from the soppy melodrama that is slowly sucking the life out of me. Oh, there is a shot of uh, (laughs) messengers on horseback, uh, in which in this shot, they are on horseback and a duck is quite visibly trampled. Quack. Okay, so maybe not trampled, but the duck 
absolutely makes eye contact with death. It is too close to call. Is the lusty month of May the corniest song ever written about fucking it is such a lame, horny song. I don't even dislike the song. It's lame. I don't hate it. But all of this flibberty gibbet carousing is beyond square and out of step with the popular culture of the late 60s. Take a look at the top 10 grocers at the box office of 1967, and you'll see what I mean. Number one, The Graduate. Number two, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. Number three, Bonnie and Clyde. Number four, The Dirty Dozen. Number five, Valley of the Dolls. Number six, Two Sir with a Love. Number seven, You Only Live Twice. Number eight, Thoroughly Modern Millie. Hello. Number nine, The Jungle Book. And number 10, Camelot. Camelot. Cam oh. Camelot. W uh, well... Fuck me, what the fuck do I know? Tenth highest grossing film of the year, fuck me. Camelot was hugely successful on Broadway, so it only makes sense, I suppose, that people would turn out for the movie. But did people actually enjoy the movie, or were they merely happy to engage with the zeitgeist? Uh, you know, the wife and I saw Camelot last night. Oh uh, yeah, the flibberty gibbet carousing was out of this world, said no one. I'm sorry, but the carousing made me want to hide under our couch. As a fan of musical theater, I don't know, I felt embarrassed. <laughs> I, I wanted to hide is what I wanted to do. A few notes on Lancelot as played by Franco Nero. This guy has major cronk energy. Everyone hates him. They are suspicious of his devotion to God and his disinterest in women. Ah, there's, there's something queer about that man, if you understand my meaning. From my perspective, Lancelot is most likely bisexual. Do I believe he had a secret affair with the character Sir Denadin? Yeah, most definitely I do. I understand homosocial relationships allowed for greater intimacy back in ye olden times, blah, 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 blah. But Lancelot is caressing the hell out of Dindin's corpse. Ah, getting all up in those hairy tits. If he can keep one secret, you know he can keep two. So everyone hates Lancelot. Yes, we've established that, but Guinevere really hates Lancelot. And I have no idea why. I can never relate to her emotional state at any point. What is her motivation beyond a superficial form of jealousy? Ah, my husband is, yeah, you know, he's always spending time with that silly Lancelot. Eh, what am I, chopped liver? I know what I'll do. I'll humiliate Lancelot in front of the entire kingdom. I will do everything in my power to ensure he is broken and battered beyond all recognition. But I'm no villain, no, no, no. You're supposed to relate to me, I'm nice. I am merely a silly goose, oh, silly me. Tee hee and ho ho. It would be one thing if Franco Nero played Lancelot as a prick, but that is simply not the case. Lancelot is a harmless himbo, a devoted German shepherd of a man. Guinevere, meanwhile, uh, by comparison, is spiteful and shiftless, a portrait of womanhood as painted by a misogynist. Pro? Here's some pros for you. Pro. The fox, owls, and squirrels who hang out with Merlin love all of those little critter creatures. Love them. Pro. The jousting tournament is an impressive bit of spectacle, teeming with hundreds of extras and dazzling sights. This was also the one and only instance when I felt a connection to the lead characters. The death of Sir Dinadin, the temporary death, spoiler alert, he comes back 
from the dead. So this, this incident leaves Lancelot heartbroken, Arthur shaken, and Guinevere in a state of shock. She never thought her schemes, her plans would come to this. Oh, who would have thought? Anyone, anyone could have told you this. I appreciated the wake-up call Guinevere experiences, but it, it did little to endear me to her in the long run. Okay, so you feel bad. You should feel bad. Every... <laughs> that, that's just, you're a human being for once in your life. You're experiencing regret. Yeah, I don't feel sorry for you. Bro, Vanessa Redgrave's costume at the end of Act 1 is most definitely eccentric, yes. And fabulous, also yes. The Queen of Camelot is serving Mirahute realness. Subtlety is off the table. Pro Mordred? I guess I like Mordred? Sure, he's the best part of Act 2, that's for sure. Sure, sure. David Hemmings is the only member of the cast who actually appears at ease in their own skin. I'm gonna amend my earlier statement. He seems like he's having fun. And I like his little stinker rat mustache energy. Yeah, fuck you, daddy, I'm a bad boy. I like nibbling on cheese and fucking with my socks on. <laughs> Mordred has two songs in the stage musical, so of course the movie cuts. Both of them? <laughs> I mean, God forbid Mordred sing. The runtime is nearly three hours long. Why are we suddenly worried about the clock? If I may quote a scene that this moment that occurs, I should say, right near the end of the film, we have a character named Pelinor who calls out to King Arthur. They're, they're on the battlefield. They're about to start a bloody, bloody battle with Lancelot. And Pelinor says to King Arthur, Arthur, who was that? And King Arthur had just been talking to this small child child who, who snuck aboard a ship or something, and the child wanted to fight in the battle, and King Arthur said, no, 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 shoo, 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 go away. We'll, we'll talk about their conversation more in just a second. But what, what Arthur says to Pelinor about the child, he says, what? okay, so I'll, I'll just do the whole setup again. Pelinor says, Arthur, who was that? And Arthur says, I'm going to do my best impression. One of what we all are, Pelly. Less than a drop in the great blue motion of the sunlit sea. But it seems that some of the drops sparkle, Pelly. Some of them do sparkle. What the fuck is with this dialogue and delivery? We're going out on this? The ending is terrible. King Arthur commands this child to tell the world about Camelot, how it was once a shining beacon ruled over by the wisest of men, a.k.a. himself. Yes, oh, go my boy. Tell them all about my grand accomplishments. Do not focus on the impending battle that will result, surely result, in the deaths of hundreds. Do not focus on the fact that I did nothing to prevent this, how I sat on my hands and watched as society crumbled all around me. Focus on the round table, boy. It was so very round, was it not? Run, boy, run, make haste. It sucks. In hindsight, I should have known better, I think, than to engage with Camelot a second time. I, I tried, I tried my level best to remain engaged. I went out on a limb because I <laughs> am a fair <laughs> and reasonable person. A fellow am I, a fellow am I. But this ain't my cup of tea and it never will be. I just have to, I have to accept that. I'm sorry to those who love Camelot. I salute you is what I do. Are you excited? for the Aaron Sorkin revival. 
Did you know that that maybe you didn't know? Aaron Sorkin is writing the script for a Camelot Broadway revival. Who's excited? Anyone? No one? Let's talk about a good bad movie, not a boring bad movie. Let's get up and head to theater number three. After you, we're in the hallway, opening the door. After you. <laughs> We're in theater number three. That was a, ooh, we made haste just then. I think we're used to all of this, uh, the, the blankets and stuff. Well, I think we've really figured this out. This is great. Beast, if you may, play the trailer for our third feature, Quest for Camelot. Journey back to a land filled with mystery and magic. A time of bravery and adventure next summer. Warner Brothers Family Entertainment presents Quest for Camelot. Attack! It's taken Excalibur! Where is the soul? In place of untold danger. We're not going in there, are we? The story of a girl who dreams of becoming a knight. A brave hero who will join her. Excalibur is missing. We're going after it. A magical dragon with two points of view. I'm Devon, and this growth on my neck is Cornwall. Oh, what I could be if there was only me. Oh, what I'd do if I didn't have you. And the evil knight. You are going to lead me to Excalibur. Who will stop at nothing to destroy all that is good and just. Next stop! Featuring songs by Academy Award winner Carol Bayer Sager and Grammy winner David Foster. Share the adventure. Excalibur only belongs in the hands of Arthur. Of the noblest legend of all time. Reaching for the sky, I stand alone. Quest for Camelot. Thank you very Thank much. You. Devin has left the building. Uh, you never sung before, have you, man? Quest for Camelot. Oh, this movie is so funny. I, I do have a soft spot, a soft place in my squishy heart for this film. It was released on May 15th, 1998. The director is Frederick Duchow, who did not direct a lot of movies after this. He did direct Racing Stripes and Underdog, and then for whatever reason, that career came to a halt. The writers of this film, Kirk D'Amico, who also wrote The Croods and V. Vivo. Oh, bonus episode subject, Vivo? The, the King of Jumanji? Wow. It's amazing to me. So we also have another writer here. We have William Schifrin, who wrote a lot of Scooby-Doo and the Fairly Odd Parents projects, and he is writing Night at the Museum for Kamunara Rises Again. There we are. The basis for this movie, the script is based on The King's Damsel by Vera Chapman, music and lyrics by Carol Bayer Sager and David Foster, and the film stars a murderer's row of actors. 
Sisters. We have Jessalyn Gilzig, who you would probably know as Terry Schuster in Glee, Mr. Schuster's wacky wife who pretends to be pregnant. That's right, she's our star here. We also have Carrie Elwes, also known as Wesley in The Princess Bride, Gary Oldman, you know him from Dracula, The Fifth Element, and Harry Potter and The Prisoner of Azkaban. Another Harry Potter alum. Who else do we have in this movie? Eric Idle. Ooh, Monty Python. He's Merlin in Shrek the Third. Talk about a fucking connecting the dot moment. I'm like, Merlin in Shrek the Third? Well, this is about Camelot too. What a, what a parallel I've drawn. Don Rickles, a.k.a. Mr. Potato Head in Toy Story. Jane Seymour, who played Solitaire in Live and Let Die. Pierce Brosnan, who played James Bond. Connections. We're connecting so many dots. Bronson Pinchot. Oh, you know Bronson. Maybe you do. Maybe you don't. Balky in Perfect Strangers. Sergey in Beverly Hills Cop. Barry in Risky Business. Those are absolutely his three major credits. Jaleel White, who played Steve Urkel in Family Matters. Gabriel Byrne, star of Miller's Crossing and The Usual Suspects. John Gilgood from Gandhi, Around the World in 80 Days. Arthur, and so many Shakespeare adaptations. Arguably, maybe the king of Shakespeare adaptations. If not one of them, let's say one of them. Let's leave room for other people at the table. And Frank Welker, the famous voice actor, Frank Welker, who has 899 credits on IMDb and counting. I'm not done. I have one more thing that I want to tell you. Just hold on to your fucking socks. Additional voices were provided by Al Roker. I, I cannot get over... This is this is about as good as the cast of We're Back, A Dinosaur Story, which that cast involved Julia Child and Jay Leno and Walter Cronkite. I can't get over these crazy, wacky casting choices for animated films. We have character vocals, okay, singing voices, I should say, provided by Andrea Kaur, Brian White, Celine Dion, and Steve Perry. Andrea, that might be Andrea. Again, I apologize if I'm mispronouncing any of these names. I'll throw this in here as well. The soundtrack includes tracks from Leanne Rimes, David Foster, and Andrea Bocelli, a very famous opera singer, and the choreographer, the film. That's right, the film has a choreographer, and it's none other than Kenny Ortega. Maybe that is hitting you even harder than the Al Roker reveal. Kenny Ortega of the High School Musical series, any number of movie musicals. Here he is cited as Kenneth Ortega. I looked it up. It's 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 the same guy. Kenny, Kenneth, you can't hide from me. Chris actually caught this credit as we were wrapping up our experience with the film. He has an eagle eye for this stuff. He has a great eye for names and faces. So I thank you, my husband. My husband. The plot. All right. I don't know if I want to. I don't want to. I don't want to go through the plot. It, it would actually be better for you if I gave you my thoughts on all of the characters. You'll get a sense of what the movie's about by by taking that path. So we'll we'll go down that path. King Arthur is played by Pierce Brosnan. I, I will say this, I will ask this question because Chris wanted to know, did Pierce Brosnan record his dialogue before or after Goldeneye? The man is trying so hard to inject a bit of sincere drama into this movie, and he is failing spectacularly, but I appreciate the effort. Merlin is played not by Eric Idle, but by John Gilgood. The man has exactly 26 words of dialogue. 
not lines. I said words for a reason. 26 words. I wrote them down. Here is, here are all of those words, okay? He says, silver wings, protect the sword. I'm afraid not. No, you have to regain your strength. You must rely on the courage of your people. Well done, Aiden. That's it. Those are all of the lines across several scenes. This iteration of Merlin is even more useless than the one we find in Lerner and Lowe's Camelot. He doesn't even perform any magic. It's so annoying. Kaylee, this character is our heroine. She's played by Jessalyn Gilsig, a terrible dud of a heroine. Oh, bad, 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 bad. She is constantly trying to prove she's not like other girls. What a dynamic. What a late 90s convention. Mother, I don't want a new dress. I want to save Camelot. She whines a lot. I don't like makeup. I'm not like the other girls. Juliana Kaylee's mother is played by Jane Seymour. This role is beneath Miss Seymour. I will move on. Sir Lionel Kaylee's father is played by Gabriel Byrne, who sounds borderline comatose, like he's crossing over into death. We have Garrett as played by Carrie Elways. This is a hermit who lives in the Forbidden Forest. He teams up with Kaylee so that they can find Excalibur and defeat the evil, wicked villain Ruber. The inclusion of a blind character who is fairly well developed, I gotta say, it's pretty cool and all too rare to this day, unfortunately. Andrea Bocelli, the opera singer we mentioned earlier, is also blind. As pointed out to me, this fact was relayed to me by Chris. So thank you again. I love you, my husband. Aiden the Falcon, as played by Frank Welker. Aiden the Falcon helps Garrett. Characters occasionally refer to Aiden as Silver Wings. It's very inconsistent, and I'm pretty sure that's because no one did a Control-F replace search when going over the script. Frank Welker is, well, Frank Welker is literally just doing Abu from Aladdin, so it's it's really just, talk about easy money. My God, he could do that in his sleep, and I, I have a feeling that he has. Ruber, the villain, is played by Gary Oldman. I love Ruber. How did he become a knight of the round table in the first place? Evil is oozing out of every pore. Even his fingernails are fucked up. His fingernails are fucking ratchet. They're evil. More on Ruber in a bit. I want to talk about the Griffin, who is played by Bronson Pinchot. Look, it was 1998. I'm sure Bronson Pinchot was happy to have the work. The Griffin owns a mod which signifies his homosexuality. That's that's how I interpret the monocle. Blade Beak is the character played by Jaleel White. Blade Beak sucks, and the movie is obsessed with him. We love this little fucker. He's a chicken who cheats on his fat, abusive wife, and Ruber uses an acne potion, a potion that he bought from some witches, we learn, but the bottle says acne on it, and he uses the potion to turn Bladebeak into a weapon. That's why he's called Bladebeak, because his face is an axe, but his body is that of a chicken. Why the fuck should I care about any of this? And then finally, we have Devin and Cornwall, a two-headed dragon played by Eric Idle and Don Rickles. The old saying, two heads are better than one, does not apply in this case. Devin and Cornwall are sorry substitutes for Aladdin's genie, despite the fact that Idle and Rickles appear to be trying their best. 
There are more than a few people in this cast that are trying their best, and their best just isn't good enough. What is up with these weirdos, these dragons? Are they in love with each other? Devin obviously loves kissing Cornwall. He does it once, he tries to do it again, but Cornwall finds this behavior repellent. He says, no means no, 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 no. They talk about wooing the women of Camelot. Oh, the women of Camelot, the actresses, the waitresses, will woo them all. You're dragons. They're humans. What are you talking about? But then they're also cracking jokes about how cousins shouldn't marry. We're living proof as to why cousins shouldn't marry. Okay, are you cousins? What's going on? Who exactly, this is what I want to know. Who exactly does Al Roker play in this movie? How many parts does he have? I need to know! Did he talk about a quest for Camelot on Good Morning America? Hey Al, I hear you have a new movie. Oh yeah, you know, Quest for Camelot. I play 17 different... Who? Who did he... Who? Who? Who did he play? Who did he play? All right, that's all I have for you in terms of the character plot breakdown. Uh, you you got the sense of what's going on, right? It's an adventure story. We're, we're trying to get Excalibur back from Ruber, who stole it from King Arthur. That, that's really all you need to know. This was the first movie I saw in a movie theater by myself. I had no parents, no brother, no friends. No friends, just me. Who needs parents or a brother or friends? I'm 12 years old, it's 1998. I'm 12 years old and I want to be left alone to watch this movie with my puppycorn. I also bought the Game Boy Color game, which I finished despite it being nearly unplayable. It's a Zelda clone. The hit detection was terrible, but I beat it. I beat that Ruber is what I did. I've kept a log of the movies I watch since 2014, which is why I know when I when I last saw Camelot and The Court Jester, so you can trust me when I say I have most recently seen Quest for Camelot in May of 2015, July 2016, and May 2019, so it's been a couple of years. The animation always surprises me by being worse than I remember. And the moldy, degenerating DVD transfer looked horrible on our new television. We deserve a 4K Steelbook edition of this forgotten flop. I would buy it in a second. Like one of our previous subjects, Anastasia, Quest features quite a few CGI elements that have a difficult time blending with the 2D animation. It is a terrible marriage. It's not a marriage of convenience. It's, oh, it's an inconvenience is what it is. It's the, okay, so the worst example of this is the ogre. I have no idea how to describe the shoddiness of the ogre. It looked awful then, and is essentially unwatchable now. I know we were pushing the limits of the technology. We had to, to get to where we are today, but man alive, that ogre is terrible. Gary Oldman is by far, ooh, he is chef's kiss, the most entertaining element of this picture. If stealing every scene was his goal, I am here to report the mission was accomplished. The people of Camelot know Excalibur has been stolen when they hear a horn, a horn, calling out for from Arthur's castle. I'm not kidding. A farmer hears this horn and immediately responds with, oh, oh, Excalibur, it's been stolen. So everyone just knows that's the horn. <laughs> if you ever hear this horn, it means Excalibur's been stolen. It made me think of the line, now all of China knows you're here from Mulan. <laughs> 
<laughs> the response to that being, of course, perfect. All of the songs are disastrous in one way or another, except for I Stand Alone, which I have memorized. I have, I do. I have the whole thing memorized from start to finish. I know the sound of each rock and stone, and I embrace what others fear. I can sing it at the drop of a hat. I will not do that for you today. I don't know. That would be a little bit too indulgent, even for me. I own a physical copy of the movie's soundtrack. I will also tell you that because I am deranged. But listen, I Stand Alone is so fun. It is Webster's definition of cheese. And Steve Perry sounds so good as Garrett, the singing voice of Garrett. It's too bad the radio-friendly version that plays over the credits is a distended bore. That version is terrible. In that version, Perry sounds like a half-rate imitator of Sting, Brian Adams, and Steven Tyler. He's trying way too hard. Kaylee's I Want number is known as On My Father's Wings, and that actually, the song actually includes the phrase, I want. And you know, that's one way of going about these things, I suppose. She's meandering about feeding the chickens and the horses with an air of mild disgust. It's all highly reminiscent of Belle in Beauty and the Beast. Ah, speaking of our concession manager, Ruber's song, which is called Ruber, that's the name of the song, that song is incomprehensible. It's impossible to track from moment to moment. Sample lyrics include, let darkness find its sad ways. Let's go back to good old bad days. And then later he sings, I have a plan. It involves you. You, Juliana, will lead me to Camelot where I will claim all that is mine. How is it possible to know you're actively rehashing Be Prepared from The Lion King and wind up with this? This is a broken song. Sample dialogue from Ruber's confrontation with King Arthur. We will jump to this scene. It's late in the film. Ruber says to Arthur, You said everyone at this table was equal. Well, I have something sweeter. Revenge! These are independent thoughts. Those are not... <laughs> Those lines do not pair well together. Very different thoughts. The DVD captions manage to make these lines even more confusing. They read as, You said everyone at this table was equal. Well, I'm here to return a few things. Revenge! That line definitely doesn't make any fucking sense. The captions are a mess. Hearing Celine Dion sing the prayer, which is this very gentle lullaby of a song, hearing her sing that over a poorly staged and utterly frantic action sequence is pretty disorienting, I gotta say. But the song found legitimate success when Dion and Bocelli, Andrea Bocelli, eventually turned it into a duet. That version was nominated for Best Original Song at the Oscars, won Best Original Song at the Golden Globes, and Best Pop Collaboration at the Grammys. It won a Golden Globe and a Grammy. And it also reached number one, number one on Billboard's U.S. Classical Digital Songs chart. What? Chris and I have no idea what that means. We have never heard of this category. The U.S. Classical Digital Songs Chart. All right, I mean, this is technically an Oscar-nominated movie. That is wild to me. I, I should have looked up the other songs from that year. Oh, goodness. Okay, I'm going to look that up right now. I have a plan. It includes you. You, Juliano, lead me to Camelot, where I will claim all that is mine. 
In the back of your wagons, my men will all hide. You'll sit up front as the gates open wide. Now watch me create my mechanical army with pride. All right, here we go. Here are the Best Original Song nominees from the 71st Annual Academy Awards. We have The Prayer, of course, but we also have A Soft Place to Fall from The Horse Whisperer, music and lyrics by Allison Moorer and Gwil Owen. That'll Do from Babe Pig in the City, music and lyrics by Randy Newman. Forgot about that. I, I forgot that there was a Randy Newman song in that film. I Don't Want to Miss a Thing from Armageddon, music and lyrics by Diane Warren. And the winner... This is a great song. I love When You Believe from The Prince of Egypt, music and lyrics by Stephen Schwartz. Back to my notes here. Devin and Cornwall's comedic number, If I Didn't Have You, features some of the most listless backup vocals I have ever heard in my life. These backup vocals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you brought in people and you paid them to sing, yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't. Save your money. And then... This has been in my head for fucking, uh, for way too long. At one point, Devin and Cornwall sing, Life could be so sweet if these were both my feet. The, the emphasis, if these were both my feet. Remember, fellas, you gotta emphasize my, my feet. Ugh. There are several 15 to 20 second vignettes that teach us nothing and are clearly meant to beef up the Wayfish runtime. I think this runs like an hour and 20 or something like that, minus credits. Ruber will pop up to say shit like, ooh, when I get my hands on that girl. Or we'll cut to Juliana in a wagon arguing with Ruber's mechanical freaks. My daughter will stop you. These scenes don't teach us anything. Cut them out. Speaking of Ruber's mechanical freaks, we see them loading weapons and one of them is carrying a cube. A cube. It's not a box or a crate. I saw those. Those actually had detail and definition. I'm talking about a solid, smooth, featureless cube. I, finish your fucking job. When Ruber finally obtains Excalibur, he uses the Acme Potion to fuse the weapon to his arm, much in the same way that he turns the chicken into Bladebeak and his henchmen into mechanical freaks. And we're meant to be impressed by this because the sword can now rotate on an axis. It's sort of slowly spinning like an egg beater, and for the life of me, I cannot imagine how this would be a plus on the battlefield. I'm running you through with my sword, and because it's spinning... You die even more quickly. No, that's not how things work. I I'm sorry, Ruber. Pop culture references. I made a list of all the pop culture references this movie makes. We have Raging Bull. Uh, at one point, Bladebeak says, You looking at me? You looking at me? And then later, he references Sudden Impact by saying, You gotta ask yourself, Do I feel clucky? It's so bad. I'm pretty sure there's a reference to Young Frankenstein because they recreate the walk this way joke. There's a reference to maybe. There might be an Alien 3 joke in here because there's a shot where Ruber is facing off against an evil dragon and their faces are really close and there's slime. There's like, you know, like the alien. The alien has slime in its mouth. I might be wrong about this one, so we'll just let that one go. We have the Lion King. We insert John Williams' Superman theme at one point. Acme product 
products, of course, but then also Looney Tunes in general, William Shakespeare's Hamlet, Tex Avery's Red Hot Riding Hood, we throw in the lady from Red Hot Riding Hood, I don't know why, and Butterfly, okay, The Phantom of the Opera, fine, Friday the 13th, Sonny and Cher, and Elvis Presley. If some of these subjects seem like a bad fit for a children's film, it's because they are. But remember, The Lion King goes out of its way to reference in the heat of the night when Pumbaa says, they call me Mr. Pig. That, that, that is, I will, I will go to my grave saying that is the craziest joke in a Disney film. There are, surprisingly, no references made to Monty Python and to the Holy Grail, despite the presence of Mr. Idol. Maybe he improvised some lines about it, and they apparently they did a lot of improvising Idol and Rickles. But none of that stuff went into the film, so maybe that maybe it got cut. I don't know. But we do get a pair of airplane jokes that arrive within seconds of each other. Garrett makes a crack about flying coach, and Devin and Cornwall describe themselves as frequent flyers. It's like they were doing everything they could to make the parents sick. These jokes are for you, Mommy and Daddy. How do you feel about that? We wrote these for you. Chris had a number of observations that he wanted to share with you, and I wanted to share them with you as well. He kept referring to Ruber as McGruber, which is a very funny joke. Oh, that McGruber. The music is barely audible throughout the song, Ruber, and Oldman's talk vocals are deplorable. This is from Chris. I, I don't disagree. It's the perfect time to get popcorn, more popcorn, even if no one needs or wants any. Hey, who wants popcorn? I'm gonna go get more popcorn. Daddy, stay! No, I'm gonna get popcorn. I gotta go. The knights raise their shields in the opening number, so they raise their shields. They're, they're standing around the round table, and every time someone raises a shield, they, they throw out some sort of term of some value or principle. So they'll raise their shield and say, for example, honor. And then the next guy will say, valor. And then I like the guy who goes, strength. But Chris could not get over the fact that one of them says, goodness. Goodness. I think we're getting a little generic. Are we running out of, are we running out of descriptors? Now let's try a little harder, we think. A parallel can and should be drawn between the Ogre and the Titans from Disney's Hercules. Hercules, I believe, came out in 97. This came out in 98, so they were in production at basically the same time. But at the same time, why not? Why not draw that parallel? Chris believes all of Kaylee and Juliana's servants are canonically queer, especially the dude. I will. I, I don't disagree with that either. We need to stop cutting back to the mom in the wagon, according to Chris. It slows everything down. Agreed. The stones match. Magic, so the sword in the stone stone is what I'm talking about. The stone's magic separates Devon and Cornwall, but it also brings them back together and heals King Arthur's injured arm. What are the rules? Chris and I always think that's so funny. To <laughs> when people get hung up on the rules of a movie, what are the rules of the stone's magic? Chris has a keen eye for awful animation, and he could not stop giggling over this shot of a frozen Aiden. The, the fucking, the hawk, the falcon, I should say. It's just this very blurry, awful little drawing that does not move at all. It really does feel like something out of your average Scooby-Doo episode. Speaking of Scooby-Doo again, the character will move when we fucking need it to move, and not a moment sooner. Don't you dare. No, no, no. It will not blink or 
or flutter its fucking wings. Not even once. To be clear, I love Quest for Camelot and will probably watch it again in another year or two. Everyone at Warner Brothers wants you to forget about it, and we cannot let that happen. No, you need to watch it. It's hilarious. But that is all I have to say regarding our final feature film. It's now time to throw all of our food containers into the trash. Oh, the pie and the pudding. It was so hot. It was on fire the whole time. I had to eat fire, my goodness, but it was delicious. The gray stuff, the popcorn, the cherry sodas. We finished it all because we were we were hungry, hungry little hippos is what we were. And here we are, we're outside. We're walking toward the concession stand and Beast, my goodness, you look even better. Your, your mane, your hair is all, it's all curled up. I, th I thought you didn't like that look with the bows and the curls and all oh, that. Oh, well, you know, brother, I, I gotta tell you the wardrobe, she's really into it. She likes a guy who's a little bit butch. A little bit femme, so I like to femme it up with the with the curls, and then and then I like to show her a good time as the beast. Uh, it's it's a, it's a fun adventure, and you know the full moon only comes around so often. I, I gave you all that food because I, I I did panic for a minute, but I think this is gonna go pretty well. Wish me luck. Wish me luck. Oh, <laughs> maybe. Yes, 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 yes. I wish you luck. If it's if it's a good situation for you, Belle in the wardrobe, I I say to you, do whatever makes you happy. As long as there are open lines of communication. Why not? Who cares? Okay. Bye, beast. We're waving goodbye to the beast. We're getting back into the catapult. Okay, so we are immediately thrown into the clouds here. I just gotta say, it's it's really, it's been nice to see you again. I really do appreciate the fact that you come back every month for a brand new episode of M3, the movie musical. Okay, <laughs> we have landed back on the ground. Hello, hello, golden coachman, catapult man. I don't know if I like that guy, though. That's a little it's a little unsettling. A little bit uncanny, that guy. No, thank you. The next episode of M3, the movie musical, man. Well, I'll tell you this much. I had a whole theme in mind. I had three movies picked out, and then I tossed them aside because I had already seen all three films, and I told myself, no. I want to put together a theme that allows me to watch movies I've never seen before. These movies that we are now going to talk about, I've never, ever seen seen them before. And that trilogy is the Little Debbie trilogy. What? Movies, movie musicals starring Debbie Reynolds. We have Give a Girl a Break from 1953, Athena from 1954, and from 1955, three films back-to-back -back hit the deck. Again, that's Give a Girl a Break, Athena, and Hit the Deck. Now, of course, we've seen Debbie in previous M3 subjects, Singing in the Rain, Charlotte's Web, Calamity Jane, but it's high time she received her own episode. That's what I say. I think that there have only been two instances where I have never seen any of the movies in a, in a given trilogy. I think the other examples were the Around the World trilogy and the R&R Rock and Roll trilogy. So, I'm excited. I hope you are, too. These are these are old films from the 50s, unless you, you grew up in the 50s. I don't know if you're listening. I don't want to make you feel old, but, you know, we all get old. It's fine. It's natural. I will see you on Wednesday, December 21st for the Little Debbie trilogy. Little Debbie. Oh, I'm so, oh, I'm excited. I already said it, but I, I will, I will see you then, all right? Goodbye. Thank you so much for donating again. See you next month.
I know the sound of each rock and stone And I embrace what others fear You are not to roam in this forgotten place Just the likes of me are welcome here Everything breathes And I know each breath For me it means life For others it's death Like every tree stands on its own Reaching for the sky, I stand alone I share my world with no one else All by myself, I stand alone Stands on its own, reaching for the sky.